every single marketer and every single brand should be attempting to earn a disproportionate share of conversation. If you work for an organization where they say, bring us a chart that goes up and to the right, you have a challenge. Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. I am here to inspire you, to excite you, to motivate you, to transform you, to energize you. Hello and welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. This episode features an interview with Jen Demas, CMO of Gigster. For more than 20 years, Jen has led marketing teams at high-growth enterprise software companies like Plex, Demandbase, Ignite, Polycom, and Hyperion. On this episode, Jen dives into the ever-changing landscape of demand gen strategy, highlighting the importance of understanding and adapting to the needs of the moment. She also emphasizes the importance of a tight partnership between sales and marketing and explains how to go about cultivating it. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com. If you are a B2B marketer who has always dreamed of knowing when a qualified prospect is on your site and being able to talk to them instantly, now you can. Learn more at Qualified.com. And now, please enjoy this interview between Jen Demas, CMO of Gigster, and your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios and host of Demand Gen Visionaries. Today, we are joined by the amazing Jen Demas. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great to have you on the show. So let's get started. What was your first job in Demand Gen? Oh, it's funny. I was just telling someone the story earlier today. I came up through marketing operations. And before that, I was actually a hands-on technologist. So the first time that I had a demand-specific role was actually when I was at Polycom. It was sometime probably around 2010, sometime around then. I had been responsible for the global marketing operations function for a couple years. And I was in my third go-around of all of the things that I would do for that organization to keep people and process and systems managed, budget, all that kind of good stuff that you would do as operations lead. And then um, I realized that I'm not someone who's very good at doing the same thing over and over again the same way. And so I went to my boss, my uh, then CMO, her name is Heidi Malin. She's wonderful. And I told her that I needed a new challenge or else I was going to have to go. <laughs> it was time for me to take something else on. And it just so happened that there was an available position running North America marketing, field marketing. And um, so I took responsibility for that team while we looked for a permanent lead there. And I was invited to participate in that search if I wanted to. And so I took that challenge for two reasons. One is I wanted a change of of scope and uh, responsibility. And the second thing was, I thought it would be really valuable for me as an operations leader to actually walk in the shoes of one of my customers. There's a few times in life when you get a chance to do that, but I thought it would make me better at my uh, operations job if I took a demand role. And so I did. So that was my first uh, time that I ever took responsibility for creation of pipeline. And ever since, I've been responsible for that function ever since. I never took a break from it. I love it passionately, and I feel really connected to the to sales when I have a responsibility for that function. So I've done it ever since. Okay, let's get to our first segment, the trust tree. With the knowledge you've been given, you are now on the inside of what I like to call the circle of trust. What, I thought we were in the trust tree with, in the nest, are we not? So this is where you can feel honest and trusted, 
and you can share those deepest, darkest demand gen secrets. <laughs> okay. Let's start out. What is your demand gen strategy? Uh, well, I mean, as in all things marketing, it depends is always the answer. There's not a demand gen strategy that is consistently applied that would make any sense, right? You have to understand your situation and adapt to whatever the needs are and the resources available in that moment. But I would say generally, it is to understand the overarching bookings and revenue objectives of the company. And you need to understand them in, in detail. So not just by a time frame. So what are the bookings targets for this quarter, next quarter? You know, what's the rolling for pipeline coverage that's required? What are the who are our target accounts? Who are the persona that decide and influence purchase? Once we understand those things, what is their journey that they go through in making a purchase decision? My demand gen strategy at a very high level, a combined motion where we discuss um, who is better suited to, for example, create awareness in target accounts is probably going to be from creating awareness in our addressable market all the way through to closing and retaining business and creating upsell if you're a SaaS business, which I've worked with SaaS businesses for the last 12 years. So that's always the case. And so... How do you organize your marketing team and where does demand gen fit in that? Again, it depends. It sort of depends on what the team is that you walk into and again, what the overarching objectives or the near and long-term objectives are of marketing. But typically, I end up having demand function that is usually partnered with operations and it usually also contains the SDR function. I prefer that and we can talk about that more in a second because I know that's one of those age-old debates. But uh, so that's demand. That's, and oftentimes, I've also had the website included on the demand function, but not exclusively. So then I have a brand and creative services team that's usually responsible. And that also in a growth company that often also contains corporate communications. So the way we set it up at Gigster, actually, we had website responsibility in this team too, um, strangely, given what I just told you. But we have uh, so PR and influencer marketing and creative services, brand management, the corporate positioning, all of that stuff managed on one team. And then I have a product marketing function. Sorry, yeah, product marketing function that pairs tightly with engineering and product management. That's, the, that's like the, the basic three that I set up in a growth company. So you mentioned, uh, you know, talking about target accounts and, and personas and stuff like that. So I'm curious, like, Let's take a step back, talk a little bit about what Gigster does, who are you selling to, talk about the market and the persona. Sure. Um, and then if you want, we can also dive into sort of like, when did I get religion about account-based stuff? Because that definitely happened at a moment in my career. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, we'll get into account-based. <laughs> that is for sure. Okay, good. It's important. So to answer the questions that are specifically about Gigster, what does Gigster do? We actually help enterprise customers provide, uh, provide their customers with excellent customer experience. Um, so we provide remote software development solutions through our own team. It's really great. We have an assembled global team, the Gigster Talent Network, that's made up of all this top-tier development talent. That includes really hard-to-hire positions like data scientists, AI and ML experts, and all of that good stuff, all the kinds of uh, all of the kinds of technical resources that enterprise companies often need but can't necessarily hire within their four walls. And we are experts at creating teams that are elastically staffed 
for delivering software outcomes using incredibly effective and efficient methods. And so we've been doing this for quite a long time. It's a ton of fun. And one of the current interesting challenges that we face as a business is, it's a great opportunity actually, we have over the last five years while we've been developing and delivering these projects, we developed our own platform internally that allows us to spin together these teams and help them manage through projects. And we are about to bring this platform to market. So where we've historically been a services company and we've been positioned as a services company from a marketing perspective, that's what we've been helping to sell. We are also in the really unique and interesting position of talking through our platform message and how we will bring that to market and how does a company operate who is offering both a service and a platform and with which solution do we lead and are they the same buyers and how do we do those things at the same time? So that's the marketing challenge that I'm living through right now, which is super fascinating. Yeah. So walk me through like the before and after, you know, a company before Gigster and after Gigster. Sure. I'll give you some specific examples without maybe using customer names, but it may be that there's some digital transformation initiative at an enterprise. So we're not really um, going to have customers who need to be convinced that digital transformation is important. <laughs> so it's, it's an enterprise that's already made this decision for themselves. So what that means is they've decided that they need to provide a superlative customer experience digitally. And it may mean that they that's not their core competency. So we have a couple of manufacturing customers that make amazing, very well-known, very established products in their segment. And their expertise is in creating those products. Their expertise is not necessarily in creating an engaged customer experience through mobile or web or any digital means. And so they might come to us to say, hey, we need some help with that. And we would deliver them those software outcomes. So we would deliver them a mobile app that meets their needs, or we would deliver them something, a technology that they embed into their products that provides a better digital experience for their customers. So the before and after would be, I'm hoping that I can create some digital experience that meets customers' expectations. And then after would be like, I know exactly how to provide those experiences, even though that may not be the reason that my company exists or what our historical expertise has been. Yeah. And so, you know, in this, in this kind of time frame where you have like, you know, all of these kind of buying decisions, who, what's the committee, maybe this is a, the time to talk ABM that is making these decisions? Well, it's really interesting. And this is where the, the distinction between the service and the product um, becomes really intertwined, but also there are different decision makers and buyers, even in the same org for those two offerings. So for the service offering, usually the people that we're talking to, and this is probably a common challenge for folks that are listening on this call, they don't have a common title because digital transformation initiatives within a company can live all over the place. They may live in a siloed organization that is literally about transformation. They might live in the IT org, uh, or they might be embedded in engineering or some other part of the organization. So title hunting is really difficult for us, but what we find is that it's usually one click down from the executive level where the decision-making for the services is made. There's a massive uh, initiative that needs to be undertaken, and there's a person who is responsible for helping to drive that initiative, and that's our decision-maker and buyer today. It means that we have to influence the CIO or the leader, the C-level leader in, in many cases, but the decision maker and the person with whom we will interact with most commonly is usually one click down from that. 
I'd imagine that makes it a little more difficult to plan those type of campaigns when it's around, you know, a topic and it's a topic that might not necessarily be the thing that they even call it internally, right? It's like, you know, digital transformation is a term that some people love, some people don't love, you know, if you're not choosing a title or if you're not, you know, kind of title hunting, are there certain triggers or things that you're looking for, whether it's from like a search perspective or just like a, a signal to the market perspective? So you can't count on titles in this case to help you at all. It's one of those things that, you know, it's an emerging area of business. And so there are not consistent titles applied. So we have a, a loose list of titles that we do look into. But if we're talking on the phone to someone, we ask certain kinds of questions to see what their scope of responsibility is. Uh, but if you're trying to talk about what's the digital footprint of these people and how do I listen to see if someone is a is a good target for us, there absolutely are conversations that you would be involved in digitally off of our site. So we listen for people talking about distributed teams or remote work. These are like, and actually, I started laughing when I said that too, because obviously everyone is remote today. But last year, when we were having this conversation, it was really interesting because we'd be talking to companies and they weren't convinced that, that their work could be done remote, right? So we used to have to have a conversation with people to say, no, actually it can. Like what you should be thinking about is who are the best people to get this work done, not who are the best people that will sit in the four walls of your company in Indiana that will do this work, but rather where are these people on the planet and get them ready to work for you? The funny thing is that now we're living this global experiment of remote work. Um, so everyone has been convinced that this is a thing that does work. Um, uh, but uh, we, we, if I was having like a predictive conversation to say, how could I find these people? They're talking about digital transformation, customer experience, employee experience, perhaps like digital tra transformation, innovation. They're talking about remote work, distributed teams, a lot of questions about staffing, hard to find talent. Those are the kinds of things that they're talking about. AI, ML, all that kind of stuff too, because there are some specific types of projects that we do really well that many companies struggle with. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, especially for, you know, them looking for a very specific solution, you know, for one AI project or something like that, that makes sense. So do you find that, you know, as you're developing this, you know, demand motion, that those folks are looking for a solution or are they are looking like for a way to solve this and they, you know, they know they need to staff up or are you fighting against kind of like you mentioned earlier, I don't even know if this is, this way of life is, is something uh, that, that is, that would even make sense for our company. So it used to be that like, so pre COVID they had an initiative that they wanted to undertake. And for the most part, companies who were trying to create digital transformation, many of them still lived with this belief that, there was this hard to find talent that they couldn't hire and they needed that talent to be at their office, right? They might have said like, we, we've, we've put in place some agile software technology, software development um, process. And so in order for us to run two week scrums and to have everyone working well together, they must all be co-located. And so some of our conversation historically was like, no, you don't, you don't all have to be sitting in the same four walls. And sometimes we could convince people and sometimes we couldn't. Even very innovative companies who provide amazing consumer goods products, for example, that we all use, they have some very dated beliefs about 
remote software development, interestingly enough. Now, now that has changed, as I just mentioned. We have to spend zero time talking to folks about that now. So now it's more like you have a constrained environment. You are working remotely. You are, by definition, working remotely. And you have hard-to-find talent, and you don't necessarily have the expertise that you need to execute projects that you must execute in order to be successful in your business. So for us now, it's more a matter of that they know they need to do it. They may think they have a talent problem. For example, they might think, if I only had a data scientist or an AI ML expert or a React you know, resource or node, then they think they could get their work done. But our conversation with them is to convince them that it's not individual talent, it's how you enable and empower teams to work well. That's what drives outcomes and that there are unique ways to do that that drive better outcomes than the way that people have historically approached those projects. How does the interplay in this scenario um, in your kind of go-to-market go between, you know, demand gen and sales? What does that what it look like? Um, one of the things that I love the most in the world is my ability and my need. I need to partner tightly with sales. I just... I don't believe that sales and marketing uh, exist as separate functions from each other. They're all connected and a part of driving customer value and bookings and revenue. Um, and so I, my favorite thing is to sit down together, sales leadership and marketing leadership, and to understand what the objectives are of the joint organization and then just plan that out together. So we're not, I'm never operating in a, a vacuum and neither are they. We're completely transparent with one another. I've been I mean, for me, that relationship with head of sales is next to my relationship with my boss, the CEO, my most primary relationship at work. And it's something that it has to be strong so that we're doing the best job we can for the company. Um, and so what I've done the last bunch of times is we've agreed on language and how we're going to measure from engagement all the way through to closed one and beyond. And we use the same signals to measure health. So we jointly determine monthly or quarterly goals. And then we just measure, measure, measure. And then we constantly talk to each other about what is working and what is not. Where are we on with our goals and where are we off and what can we do together to fix that? And then, you know, you have this other part of the business, the talent network. You know, how do you, are you responsible for marketing that? Like, what does that look like? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. It was one of the things that excited me the most about this opportunity because I'm a B2B girl, right? I've just been doing B2B technology marketing for my entire career. And this is the most like a B2C motion that I've ever had. So that interested me academically and um, as a professional challenge. But the other reason that I'm excited about it is it's a true pleasure. Like this is an amazing talent network. These are people who have made intentional decisions about how they spend their career. They have, they have skills that are highly sought after and they have a life that they are choosing to live in a particular way. So we have folks all over the world with these great skill sets who choose to work the hours that they want to work and they can dictate uh, largely you know, the dollars that are driven for their effort. And then they can do other things. We have folks that you know, code half the day and surf half the day. We have people who work six months on and six months off. So I really think that this is, you know, an area where we're going to see so much of this in the future in many, many different industries, but people creating their careers and crafting their work life so that it supports their life life 
in, in a much more powerful way. And they have leverage here because they are these highly sought after talent. And so I've loved that aspect of my work. Today, we have a thriving network and we aren't in full tilt recruiting for that network, but there have been moments when you know, we've needed a specific kind of talent. And so we've done some outreach to try and get those folks to join the network. But in this moment, the marketing challenge is more about engaging the network, you know, creating a sense of community for these people who all live and work in different places, keeping them connected to each other and to the Gigster team, and then celebrating their successes, telling their stories, the personal stories and the professional successes in a way that helps us to explain their benefit to our future customers. Yeah, I mean, you you know, you're talking about a network that's, you know, over a thousand folks, you know, 600 plus software engineers with a net promoter score of 84. That's pretty good. It is not bad. And these are people who like they are crafting their career exactly in the way that they want it. It's it's really something to behold. And they're insanely collaborative. We communicate a lot in Slack. And so there's constantly conversation where people are like, "Hey, have you ever faced this problem?" What have you guys done about this? Or I have an idea. What if we did a that? And everybody jumps in and contributes. And it's really vibrant and inspiring. Very collaborative, really creative work. All right, let's get into our next segment, the playbook. This is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. This is where you can open up that playbook and talk about the tactics that help you win. Can you give me three uncuttable budget items? I thought about this before we were speaking, and I've just been in so many different situations in my life when cuts are necessary. <laughs> so I don't know that there's a cuttable thing. I think, again, I think you have, to, you have to adjust to the current situation, to the requirements of the business in the moment. There are a lot of things I would prefer never to live without. And if I think about them, you know, from a, a team perspective, I always want to have tight alignment with sales leadership. So that relationship being strong and in place is not negotiable for me. So there's one uncuttable thing, right? My constant connection, accountability, transparency, and strong relationship with a selling org. That's something that I don't feel is like on the table. It, it can't, if that's out, it needs to be fixed. So that's one thing. I know that's probably not a traditional answer for you, but... Yeah, I think it's a great answer because um, yeah, because it is so critical, but how do you invest in that? How do you think about investing in that? I mean, investing time is is the same thing as investing money. So I, I think it definitely is it definitely is an investment. Yeah, and I mean, for me, it, like I said, it's not negotiable. So it's, it's a relationship that needs to be cultivated, constantly fed. And the way that it is cultivated is through... Constant communication. So very, very frequent. I know there's always a conversation about how many times a week should you meet with these people? You know, I, I'm in, I'm in constant conversation with sales leadership and we have very many shared meetings every single week so that we stay aligned. Um, common measurements are really important. And that, I mean, if you want to get down to the, like, you can't live without a transactional selling system, right? You have to have that. And for the last bunch of years, it's always been Salesforce for me. I know there, there are others, but that's the one with which I'm most familiar. I always have to have a marketing automation solution. I've used um, Eloqua and Marketo. I know there are also others that come in at different price points and that's an important thing. So I don't think those things are things that you can live without very easily and conduct good growth business. Obviously your website is your always on front door and salesperson and that needs to reflect your corporate 
positioning your, you know, what is your value to prospects and customers, but it also needs to engage folks from a demand perspective and it needs to speak to investors and potential employees and all that. So very, very important. Those are the three, like you can't really not have those things. I guess that's it from a technology perspective. You know, speaking of website, you know, being the front door, you know, we talk about it a ton on the show. We talk about how, you know, important that is, but are you integrally involved in the way that your website is crafted? Are you, you know, writing copy, checking copy? Like, how do you view that stuff? Because I know that websites oftentimes the CMO's baby. So I'm curious, is it yours? Well, I can speak to you about like, well, I'll, I'll start with Gigster and then I'll take a, a couple of giant steps back and tell you some other experiences. But we had a challenge when I got to Gigster, which was we did not have consistent positioning. So every person that you spoke to described what the company did, what its value was, for whom it was, like what corner of the room did we claim? Everyone described that differently. And so fundamentally, even before I came on, I got aligned with the CEO that that was something that needed to be addressed from a corporate level. And so right away, we conducted a corporate, like a cross-functional exercise about determining our positioning. And then our website had been around for a really long time, and it had a ton of content on it, but it was very hard to understand. Like it was hard to wade through that content and find what you were looking for. And so we actually just built from scratch. We built a very thin website that was really about the corporate positioning that told our story very cleanly. And then since that time, we've been adding in content Um, because it's a, it's a growth company and the message is new and the team is all new. Everything's new. We're all involved in those decisions. So one of the things that's been interesting over the last year and a half is we started off with a grand heavy website because we built it from scratch. And it was like, it was only four pages in the beginning. And then we have since that time been adding in a lot more engaging content as the year has progressed. And and frankly, we're in the process of redesigning and rewriting the homepage right this minute. We're going to be launching another one that is a lot more demand focused. So if you were to look at the website today, you could see it's, it's actually beautiful and it tells the story of who we are, but it's not as engaging as it should be as a B2B website from a demand perspective. So we're focusing more on creating deeper engagement from the homepage in and putting more places that people can dig into content on the homepage than, than currently exists. And yes, I am involved in those conversations. Do you want me to tell stories of previous websites? Feel free. I mean, go for it. Yeah, I would love to love to hear more. I mean, a a contrasting web experience was when I was at Ignite, they have a really strong SMB go-to-market. That's sort of their cash cow. And their website isn't just a place that people go to consume information. It's also where customers transact. Like they become customers through that website and they engage with the product as the website is a front door. And so that is a completely different need and function within a business. So that website, there was some things that were not negotiable because they were transactional, right? They were how people did business with Ignite. And so that did create a completely different conversation within the company about who was involved on the website but and who needed to be involved with changes that were made. And that, that included a lot of product people because of the way that, that the customers interacted with the product. Yeah, I'm curious, what are some of your favorite campaigns that you've done in your career? It doesn't necessarily just have to be Gigster, but, but other campaigns. I was thinking about this before and something that we did when I was at Plex 
I think is a really amazing story of integrated marketing that had great success for us. The product marketing team actually started this idea and they created an actual book about manufacturing. That was a, Plex is a company that sells a cloud-based ERP to manufacturers. Specifically, they target automotive and general manufacturers and food and beverage manufacturers, some very different industries. But the product marketing team had a great idea to create a substantive asset. It was actually a book about how you should approach manufacturing differently, how that the people's thinking about shop floor management needed to evolve with cloud-based technology. And they created this really, really rich, like heavy asset. It was a beautiful book and it was filled with important content that was about the customers and the industry. And we wrapped the entire outreach that we did from a brand and campaign level for several quarters around that asset. And that's something that I think is really great. If you can have a very heavy asset, like that's a focal point, and then you wrap together your awareness activities, your you know, getting your display advertising for your target audience, all of the activities that you can run in a quarter. For example, we structured demand activities about different segments of the book. It was broken into thirds. And so we would have, you know, one quarter, we'd be talking about one of the thirds and everything we were doing was about that topic. Um, and I just thought that was a really beautiful way that we coordinated across the entire function of marketing and sales to create conversation that was very impactful. It was driven by one really gorgeous asset. What about a campaign that maybe was one of your biggest uh, learning experiments or experiences? Well, I mean, also, it's, it's not a campaign. This is more something that happens in account-based marketing. It happens if you're doing it right. You know, if you're measuring things, you can always tell when things aren't going the way you expected. That's kind of your responsibility. Make sure you have the instrumentation in place so that you can watch to see that you're getting your outcomes that you planned for. But I remember when we were growing the enterprise motion at Plex, we had a belief that a specific persona was going to really help us influence decisions. And so we focused a tremendous amount of effort on that persona, probably a whole quarter's worth of energy of demand on this persona. And we absolutely got them to engage. It was amazing. So originally we were like, hooray, we are successful. We have gotten these people who we were not speaking to before to talk to us. They wanted to have meetings with us. They tied up time with salespeople. You know, they, they engaged with marketing assets. They talked to SDRs. They met with salespeople. And we then found out, as you continue to measure, they had no ability to drive deals to close. They were not the influencers that we hoped that they would be. And so because sales and marketing was talking all the time, and because we measured everything through all the way from first touch through to close, we realized, uh-oh, like we had made a decision that, was, that did not play out. And I guess rather than me saying like, that's a bad thing that happened, I would tell you that that always happens. Like your, your, your expectations and your assumptions are very rarely 100% on. So I wouldn't necessarily call that a big miss. I would say we learned something important. But it was an educated decision that we made together and that we measured for. So when we saw, if you had originally just measured it on first touch, you would have said, hooray, that was a wonderful um, initiative. But when you really watched it all the way through, you realized like, uh-oh, these people do not play the role that we thought they do, and they cannot drive success for us. So because we were watching and measuring, we learned something important and we just adjusted. 
You are a founding member of Women in Revenue, an amazing organization, which, uh, which I'm a member of. And uh, I'm curious, you know, like, why was this such a need? Why were you so excited to, uh, you know, to start building this and, uh, and kind of where are we at today? Well, thank you for asking me about it. It is one of my favorite things that I do. Women in Revenue is a really important organization. It's an organization created for women in marketing, selling, and customer success roles. And we used to be fairly geographically focused, but since COVID, we've switched to virtual events, and that has allowed us to extend our boundaries. So we do quarterly events as a whole organization, and we also have a really beautiful mentorship program. Uh, the, or, the organization membership is half people who are advanced in their careers and half people who are coming up in their careers. And the goal of the org was to create a place for conversation to help everyone move themselves forward, a place to ask questions, a place to get support with your work, but also with the dynamics of work that are unique to women. And I'm so proud of this organization, how we've grown. We're 3,000 members um, a couple of years in, and that's blown all of us away. Honestly, we every time we look at the reg numbers, we're, we're just thrilled and proud. And it's just such a nice thing for me. It was important for me. I was able to have the success that I had because I had all of these powerful, strong, generous women around me. And I am so happy to have a place for me to have those same kinds of conversation with people who might benefit from my experience and expertise. And so that's what drew me to the organization in general. And that's what keeps me working so hard at it and being so proud of the initiative and the organization. Thank you for being a member. And I would encourage anyone who's listening who isn't currently a member uh, to go to womeninrevenue.org slash join and become a member. It's just, it's something so incredible and powerful. What marketing trends are you excited about that are coming up? Well, I mean, so many of these things that we're talking about are only a couple years into real. So again, just like the testing and measuring thing, <laughs> I think there's so many things that we're doing now that we've been doing for a handful of years that still have a lot more, a lot more evolution to, to have. I think I'm, I'm academically interested in this conversation about, you know, how important is an MQL? Should a form really be a, a gate? You know, should you really create friction between the person engaging with the content or not? Those conversations interest me. And again, I think the answer is it depends, but that's someplace that I spend some time. I spend a lot of time thinking about that. I love the fact that all of these technologies that are coming out now allow us to understand so much about the buying journey and the digital footprint of our prospects well before they're interested in us so that we can understand how to provide more value to them. So just continuing on those, those sorts of trends that have been around, you know, for the last 10 years or so. Let's get to our next segment, the dust up. Uh-oh, here comes trouble. You may have heard that there was a dust up involving yours truly. And now we've got a wild scrum with fights breaking out all over the place. And it is getting really ugly as we've got punches and kicks. This is where we talk about healthy tension whether it's with your board, your sales team, a competitor, or anyone else, have you had a famous or memorable dust-up in your career? I struggled thinking about this because, of course, there's. if you think about the Lencioni, um, the you know, Healthy Teams uh, book that he's written, the, the um, sorry, I'm, I'm blanking out on the name right now, but there's this concept that you need to have enough trust in the relationship of the executive team so that you can have healthy conflict. 
That is the goal of having a healthy executive team. And so when there is conflict, I always consider that a sign of health. As long as it's respectful <laughs> uh, conflict and, and you're saying things in the best interest of the business, even things that are hard, that's the goal, right? You want to have a conversation where you can say hard things and you can talk through things. So I, I really struggled to come up with a, a story that I thought was like, that would qualify as a dust up that wasn't something healthy. <laughs> I went way back in my way back machine. And when I was responsible for marketing operations, way back at PeopleSoft, one of my very dear friends in the world was responsible for sales operations. And that was when these functions were much more siloed than they are today. And we got into, interestingly enough, back in the year, whatever that was, 2000, 2004, we were fighting about attribution. If I look back on that now, I remember really coming to blows about, no, our systems show that marketing sourced this. And sales saying, no, our systems show that sales sourced this and everything for marketing is garbage. It was sort of that age old conversation. Um, and it was a really, it was, it was a really ugly <laughs> argument about who sourced which work. And we've come such a long way in terms of our ability to measure those things in ways that we all agree. It goes to that whole thing of coming up with instrumentation that's common across functions. But also, interestingly enough, that operations leader has since become a head of sales, a head of marketing. She lived as a CMO for many, many years, and sometimes she still is, and a COO. So she's walked in all of those shoes now, and we've both had those attribution conversations a million times. But I, that is something that I remember um, that was a real battle point back in the early 2000s. Let's get into our quick hits. These are quick questions, quick answers. Just like how quickly you could talk to someone on your website with Qualified.com. Qualified.com is the presenting sponsor of this show. They're the best. We love them. Check them out. Go to Qualified.com. Your prospects are on your website right now. They're ready to buy, and uh, you can have a conversation with them. It's great. Links in with your uh, your Salesforce or, or whatever. They're awesome. Check them out. Quick hits. Jen, are you ready? Yes. Number one. Do you have a skill or hobby that you picked up during Shelter in Place? We've done a lot of jigsaw puzzles. We've played cribbage almost every single day. And we have acquired a third dog. So I'm getting to be a good dog trainer. When everything is lifted, what is the first place in the East Bay that you're going to go eat? I don't even know the answer to that. <laughs> That's an excellent question. I don't know. I've been locked down so long. I can't remember. I don't either, and I've been I've been thinking about it a lot because I live in Oakland, and uh, there's so many choices. Oh my gosh, there's so many great places to eat in Oakland. It's funny, because I don't. I mean, this is not in the realm of quick answers at all, but for real, um, my habits have changed about that. Like we used to go out a lot, and I think that's going to change for me. I just I've got you know we're saving so much money by not doing that. I don't know that I'm going to go back to that whole eating out all the time thing, but who knows? If you weren't a CMO. It could be anything else. What do you think you'd be doing? I would love to make a career out of the mentorship, you know, the engagement with women in marketing and selling and customer success. Like that's something that I'm super passionate about and I love. So I'd love to do that. I am very operationally oriented. So something that I sometimes think about is working at a nonprofit and helping them is something that I'm really passionate about and helping them, uh, you know, really get their Work, their important work done and lending my business expertise to a place that could probably need it. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure Claire always needs the help, uh, the women in revenue, because she's, uh, she's crushing it. So 
Uh, always lots to do on that front. That's for sure. You mean Sherry, Sherry Johnson? Oh, no, isn't, I thought, isn't Claire the, like an employee, right? Yeah, actually, um, you want to hear something funny? <laughs> yeah. There's my daughter. Oh, no, no way. Yeah, she's the only employee. She's the only employee of Women in Revenue right now, and she's my daughter. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, so, okay, that's hilarious. I'm just putting uh, the names together. And I was it's so funny because I, I was on a call with her a few days ago, and I saw on your LinkedIn your name, and I, I was like, why have I seen that name, like, really recently? <laughs> Yeah, she's um she's sitting one room away from me right now. <laughs> that's hilarious. Well, tell her I say hello. I will. And uh, that's too funny. Oh my goodness. Anywho, back to back to quick hits. Um, okay, final thoughts here. Uh, and what would be your advice for a CMO who's trying to either rethink their demand gen strategy or uh, or trying to uh, to figure it all out? Oh, my my advice is. You're absolutely not the first person who is facing the challenges that you are facing in this moment. So my advice is do not try and make decisions about change in a vacuum. You know, leverage your community. Talk to marketers who've made the same kinds of decisions or face the same challenges. Talk to salespeople who have struggled. You know, leverage people with experience because they're out there and there's no need to reinvent things that, that have worked. And a lot can be learned from other people's successes and, and mistakes. So I would say don't work in a silo. Jen, that's it. That's all we got for today. Any uh, any final thoughts? No, but thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, great having you and uh, look forward to, uh, to talking again soon. Demand Gen Visionaries is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com, a conversational marketing company that's on a mission to transform the way B2B companies sell. Go to Qualified.com to learn more.